0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to talk about impact and environmental, social, and governance investing, also known as ESG investing. Goldman Sachs Asset Management, or GSAM, last August bought an advisor, Imprint Capital, to help broaden the firm's ESG efforts. John Goldstein, who co founded Imprint and now helps lead our ESG platform, is here today to discuss his new role and the future of sustainable investing. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jake. So, John, there's been a lot of talk in the financial community about socially responsible investing lately, and people are calling it impact investing, they call it mission driven investing, ESG investing. Map it out for us. How should someone make sense of all this, that someone who's not following it every day? What do all the different categories look like from an experienced professional's view?
1: So parsing the alphabet soup of these different disciplines is daunting but important. People use the same words to mean different things, different words to mean the same things, all around this broad question of how do we deploy resources in line with things we may care about or want to see in the world. So we divide into three categories, alignment, integration, and impact. So first, alignment. Alignment fundamentally is about making investments in a way that, get a certain underlying financial exposure. It could be to an equity market, a debt market, you name it, but with a higher degree of alignment relative to a value someone has. Now, those values vary. It could be around gender equity. It could be around climate change. It could be around a whole host of different issues. But fundamentally, the state of the art in alignment is around maximizing units of that alignment Per unit of tracking area by how much you vary from the basic financial exposure you want. So an example of this is a recent announcement of a partnership with New York State who said, I want my basic equity exposure, I want Russell 1000 equity exposure, but I want to reduce my ownership of carbon. So worked to create a portfolio that had a 70% reduction in the rateable ownership of carbon emissions with a 25 basis point tracking error relative to the index. So the basic financial exposure with a high degree of alignment.
0: So they're still very much exposed to the broader market, but they've reduced their carbon impact dramatically. Exactly. Easy
1: to fit into portfolios, large or small, but a high degree of alignment with things people care about. And the state of the art is getting increasingly sophisticated on both sides of that equation. On the alignment, better use of data and analytics to be able to understand that alignment, to quantify, not just to say I'm broadly reducing emissions, but I'm getting a 72% reduction in my rateable ownership of carbon, to use analytics in a more thoughtful way, and to do it in a financially risk-managed, responsible way. Okay, so
0: that's alignment. Move on to integration.
1: Whereas alignment is often about the immateriality of integrating these factors, ESG is almost the opposite. ESG is actually, how can I find investment value? to drive risk and return by integrating research, data, thematic, industry, or company-specific ways to use ESG as a source of investment edge. In the same way, investment managers are always looking for a way to outperform their competitors. ESG alpha. ESG alpha, right? Um, and as with anyone seeking alpha, it's hard, right? Finding alpha is hard. And ESG is not the only way to find it and it is by no means a guarantee that someone will find it. However, we're increasingly seeing this integrated into the process of really good managers and a very successful one that's been a top decile performer over a decade. When someone asks what percentage of your performance would you attribute to your ESG? His answer is, I have no idea. Because it's completely integrated to that process and we're seeing that mainstream really substantially. So the third is impact. Impact are private investments with measurable social environmental outputs. These are investments that could be underserved communities with financial services, health, education, job creation. It could be around climate. So the thesis is
0: about having the
1: impact. The thesis is about having the impact, and we want an alignment between the investment thesis and the impact thesis because if how you make money is how you do good, you're probably not going to get a lot of mission drift. Those things are going to reinforce each other and be a core part of how something grows.
0: So one of the traditional knocks on impact investing is that you end up sacrificing market returns because you're not getting as broad exposure as you would otherwise. But we've also seen some companies with the ESG factors have the greatest correlation of market outperformance. So what do you tell clients about those two different views? Yeah,
1: this is probably the single most frequently asked question. And I think oftentimes, to be honest, the question is asked in the wrong way. Generally speaking, people wouldn't ask or wouldn't think it made sense to ask, does investing work? Because the answer to that question is it's hard. It takes effort and care, but it can be done well. Um, it's not always done well, but it can be done well. And this is no exception to that. And I think people often are looking for an answer that says it's either magic, it defies the laws of physics, gravity, and you know magically outperforms, or it's poison. It just fundamentally means you can't perform. And academic research and experience and frankly, just investment logic, defy those generalizations. So a meta study was published that analyzed almost 2,200 studies of the impact of ESG on financial performance. And of those studies, 90% of them found a non-negative relationship. So I think what we will say, the case that this is a drag on performance doesn't seem to hold water with a pretty broad base of research. Non-negative is not the same thing as positive. Back to it's not magic, it's not poison. The fact base that it's not poison is quite clear. We're also not asserting it's magic. It takes care and rigor to do it. But when we look at this, right, let's get back to the, the taxonomy. Let's get back to the buckets. Alignment investing is about can you drive the appropriate financial exposure with the appropriate level of alignment. So back to the New York State example. You know, looking at that, can it stay with its very small tracking error, perform like the market, and achieve a 70% plus reduction in emissions? That's what the reporting looks like. So far, so good. That's what's going to continue to track. In our experience in imprint, we saw working in a variety of ways. It is possible to thoughtfully design, implement that such that those portfolios do what they're supposed to do, which is look like the market with a higher degree of alignment. That's what performance
0: there looks like. So in the last several years, we've seen a lot of attention, governments and others, bringing focus on impact in ESG investing. The White House had a roundtable in 2014. Last December, this was a big topic at the climate conference in Paris. And according to the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, ESG integration increased almost eightfold between 2012 and 2014, reaching $5 trillion in U.S. manager assets. So you've been in this field since its very early stages. What's driving the big uptick in activity in this space recently? The fact
1: that the activity has grown is impossible to miss. And just when I think about my day-to-day, where is the interest coming from, the strength of interest across different types of investors? So we spent a lot of time thinking about why. And I think we've come to the conclusion there are a couple key factors. Number one, at a basic level, the core drivers have accelerated. And those core drivers, some of them are financial, which is the case around risk and return. Something that may have sounded idealistic a few years ago, like there's risk around coal that was put forth by NGOs and other activists, turns out to have been basically a preface to what was regulatory policy and engagement risk that has profoundly affected the sector. Once again, it's not magic, it's not poison. This doesn't magically mean these are always good investment themes, but the idea that this is pure idealism, that this has nothing to do with investing, is a little bit of a harder proposition to hold. And when we talk to managers, the idea that this is a relevant part of the toolkit is a much more uncontroversial proposition than it was say five years ago and there are these very visible signs of what's happened you see cop and climate you see economic growth and emissions decoupling for the first time ever the world's relationship with carbon is changing where is it going it's hard to say but that it's changing is relatively clear that when we can have economic growth without emissions growth something in that is changing and it makes investors mindful on the risk and return front. we're talking to an emerging market debt manager that just said when they looked back at the major corporate credit events in emerging markets a large number of them were driven by a small set of core corporate governance issues which then they said well let's take that empirical data let's weave it into our process we have these visible examples of why this matters from an investment perspective then the non financial side of it stakeholders care a lot you know and we see this with pensioners we see this with students I like to joke that in the latest survey, 134% of millennials want to do this in their portfolios. I think people often put this on millennials, and that's true, but it goes way beyond that in terms of other stakeholders. We've gotten into a little bit of a virtuous cycle where that demand and that recognition has gotten to a point where it's driven innovation in terms of products and service providers, which have built proof points and models of success. Those models of success drive more demand, drive more innovation, drive more models of success. So that we've gotten a little bit of that accelerating virtuous cycle that has taken a theory and made it into what looks like an approachable practice.
0: We've also heard a lot of criticism these days, especially since the financial crisis, about so-called quarterly or short-term capitalism. Do you see impact investing in ESG integration as a possible rebuttal or counterpoint to some of those concerns?
1: Yeah, you know, I might not say rebuttal, but I'd say very consistent with that. We talk to a lot of investors who don't label what they do ESG, but they have the same concerns about short-termism. They take a long-term perspective. They try to find high-quality companies and great management teams that are very well-run, and they want to own them for a long time. Those are sort of cousinly sensibilities to ESG and sustainability, and they're very complementary. And we find this, we're going through a client's portfolio that tends to invest in managers that have that bias. They like quality. They don't like to take lousy companies and clean them up. They like high-quality teams, high-quality companies, own them for a really long time. And those companies turned out to have very good ESG scores. So, you know, it's interesting. We hadn't thought about it as doing ESG investing, but now that we realize it, that connection of high quality companies, good management, a long-term perspective, you know, investing, not trading, you know, is very in sync with this approach and with this model.
0: Let's talk a little Goldman Sachs shop. Last August Goldman Sachs acquired Imprint Capital, the firm you built, John, so that we could expand our ESG and impact investing capabilities for all the clients. Why did the acquisition make sense for your firm? It has been a fascinating process. I
1: mean, you're a very small shop, right? We're a 16-person firm, happily doing our work based in San Francisco, a small New York office, and we assume that's what we keep doing. And this came a little bit out of nowhere to us and also to the rest of the world. And back to the comment about the growth in the market, this is a sign of where the market has come. So for us, it made sense because we started to realize a couple things. Number one, investing well takes scale, depth, and breadth in infrastructure. We've always been committed to really a core set of things, which is we want to do more impact in ESG investing. We want to do a better job of it, and we want to get more leverage and scale out of it. And if you take that seriously at a certain point, the resources of our 16-person 16, person 16 firm, people,
0: it's hard to scale. A little bit hard to scale. Yeah. And just
1: the glimmer of what that reality is like, for example, as we work with the quantitative teams here in the data warehouse on ESG data and analytics, going from a few great team members of ours working with Excel— to some of the most sophisticated quantitative resources in the world puzzling over how to get meaning and significance with the ESG data sets in a new way. The theory of we're going to have access to more resources as it's met the practice has been remarkable. So just frankly, to carry on our mission, number one, it made sense to do this. Number two, once upon a time, people just wanted to do a little bit of this, a toe in the water, 5% of their portfolio, dabble here and investment there. And being a niche firm that would service that made a lot of sense in that world. The good news in a lot of ways is that people didn't want to stop there. People who started there want to say, okay, let's get to 20, let's get to 50, let's get to 100%. I mean, there's a whole network of investors that want to at least be mindfully engaged across their full portfolios. And in that context, be able to put the whole thing together in a way we never thought would be needed or possible. We assumed no one would want it. And by the way, it's not possible. We're going to have niche providers like us and large global institutions with their strength but that don't have the depth in what we do. Now the world actually wants it, and we realize, thanks to Goldman Sachs, who gently brought this possibility up to
0: us, that frankly we hadn't considered, that it was possible. The analytics in this field must be interesting and are not standardized at this point. Talk a little bit about impact reporting, how it's evolving, what is state-of-the-art today?
1: Not surprising for a field called impact investing, measuring investing is important, and measuring impact is important. And I think the impact measurement side is a critical one and one that has not always been, I think, handled effectively. So our approach to it, back to some of the earlier comments, is find a small set of core metrics that are material to the investment, that are central to the business model, because we want our financial drivers and impact drivers aligned. How you make money should be part of how you do good. Because what that means is we're focused on what matters, the odds of mission drift are low, and it's probably stuff our investee tracks, or if they're not tracking, they should be tracking. And we focus on that. I think there are a lot of approaches to try to create very expansive standards. And I think one of the things we see as a recurrent theme is we can have the proliferation and spread of data, or we can have concentration on things that are meaningful. We focus on a small number of things that are meaningful, and we report on this with all our investees. Because what our clients really want is they want to know, what am I doing? I want to do things that have some scale, have some meaning, and have a connection for example, one of our investees, they ended up saving six terawatts of power. That's the equivalent of taking the states of Alaska and Hawaii off the grid for a year. So that's meaning, scale, and connection. That's what people are looking for. And it's tied to their core business because it also ties to their revenue growth. And I think that's the what we like to see. Efficiency ratios, yeah. There's an efficiency. And because that's where impact metrics really start to matter is If it's an academic compliance process where i got to put a number in a book so someone sees a number in a book, that's not that useful. But if it helps us make, manage, and understand our decisions so we can be better allocators of capital, so we can be better investors with our investees and engage in a meaningful way, then that's useful. And so we view it as an essential part of the investing process, not as a separate exercise.
0: So John, there are critics of ESG and impact investing. They think it's somewhat naive to believe that there are market solutions to every problem, and they fear that certain areas that are very high need will not get as much attention as others that generate all the headlines. What do you make of that criticism?
1: The field has not always done itself favors with the breadth of how it talks about a lot of things, because often it's played into the desire to have these generalizations, to paint with a broad brush, because sometimes it's overclaimed what it can do. So we spend a lot of time with people who are ready to be pushed and prodded with claims of how great this is, and that's not what we do. Some folks have come out and gotten a little too far out on the market triumphalism spectrum, right? Markets are the answer to all of our problems, and the answer is, no, they're not. They're the right tool for certain jobs, they're promising pieces of the puzzle for some jobs, and we haven't figured out how to use them for others. And I think this is where being able to play across that spectrum. And this is one of the things that's so nice about the full team here is, you know, we have folks that work in philanthropy at the firm. There are folks that work in sort of deeper, much higher touch, higher engagement impact investing at that edge of how do you engage markets. And then we're doing the more conventional portfolio impact investing. That tension is really hard if people can only write one kind of check or if people are too invested in one sort of model. But if you can pragmatically say, what's the right tool for the right job? I spend a lot of time often, and I didn't do it in this conversation, but often I'll start by saying, be forewarned. My answer to a lot of your question will be, it depends. And I think that's very true of this field, and that's what growing this field looks like. It's getting away from this desire to have generalizations and this binary back and forth. Market solutions are good. Market solutions are bad. Right? You know, all of these different dynamics. Getting past that to saying, all these tools have relevance in different ways in different pathways and mechanisms. So let's find them and let's do them well and let's learn and let's take all of these to where they can go. People can get stuck in the ivory tower very easily in this space. We had a family foundation client we were working with that had been stuck arguing for three years about how much impact investing to do. You had one of the family members that was a co-founder of a very successful venture capital firm that thought they should eventually get to 2% and then a family member that thought they should get to 100% and somewhere between 2% and 100%, or as I say, somewhere between the moon and New York City, they were having a hard time finding common ground, what we realized is they were philosophizing about the quality of a market neither of them really participated in. And so instead we said, why don't you agree to do this? You've got a good committee, you've got good process, good standards of care. Why don't you agree to use the same process, the same people, and look at some slightly different investments? If they pass muster, invest in them. If they don't, don't. If you invest in them and they work, keep them. If they don't, fire them. And everyone agreed to that, albeit with very different expectations of what would happen, because that's a governance conversation. The previous conversation was an ivory tower philosophizing conversation. This is an investing and a governance conversation. So they got started with their very different expectations, and the portfolio within three years got to about 60% aligned with their mission. They had someone else do an outside look at it, and they felt when they looked at it, there hadn't been a financial opportunity cost, and everyone thought they'd won. So... Mr. 2% had held back the tides of folly by insisting on good care and discipline and rigor, and that was why it was working. And the other family member was just ecstatic at how far things have gone. I think we often see that as when you get past this very binary, high-level debate and you figure out, is that what we really need to be stuck on? What's the real conversation, which generally is going to be more nuanced and more textured and more based on practice and process as opposed to debate? That's where progress happens.
0: Is that a typical conversation when you're starting with someone? Yeah.
1: No, it, it's... I it's, mean,
0: what, what is it like when you first walk into someone that's been talking about this? What's the kind of advice that you end up giving them, or does it just depend?
1: Well, it depends, but there are certain commonalities that always happen. So step one is we generally acknowledge, and especially when we're meeting with fiduciaries and trustees, we'll walk in and there'll be some people with their sort of shoulders clenched a little tight. Someone sitting. brought
0: you in there, but maybe not all of them
1: someone, agree. Someone you know. brought us in, but not everybody, right? Yeah. And so they'll look a little... And we'll often start by saying... I'm going to guess that in the past at some point someone has come in and made overly broad claims, not backed by facts, that didn't exactly understand your context and what you're doing and was maybe a little more promotional and maybe left you with a little skepticism. And you'll see some nods. And then we'll say, well, so maybe this is good news, but that's not what we do. And then the shoulders go down and we start having a conversation. So then we say, OK, look, we've done this over time. We have some experience. And general, we've seen people are in one of two situations. So tell us where you are. People are either actively stuck, which is some of you disagree with some of the rest of you, or you're passively stuck, which is there's not really disagreement, you're just not sure where to start. So the example I gave earlier, that's actively stuck. People disagreed, And so often there, it's get them off the wrong question to the right question, find a common ground.
0: Have you found a difference in the receptivity between sort of state pension funds and the like? Um, you know, official large institutions like that and the smaller family foundations or maybe foundations of organizations that are already doing good in their day-to-day work? It's been fascinating in the
1: sense that when we parse by geography and by sector, who's where and what's going on. So when we go to continental Europe, The question is not whether to do this or even what to do, it's what's next. So these are institutions that have worked to be mindful around their portfolios for some time. They've often worked to start in public markets, and what they want to know is what's in private markets. They want to know what's next. We see the same thing in Australia. We see the same thing to do with faith-based clients. The faiths have been real leaders. The faiths really have been longtime pioneers in doing some of this work in terms of screening and in terms of activism, but now particularly with the papal encyclical and other focus on climate, their question is, okay, what do we do around climate? How do we make private investments around climate? So some of these segments have just been steadily moving ahead. I think we're seeing other large official institutions interested, they're mindful, and their question is scale which is how can I meet my fiduciary obligations and put the capital out at a scale I need to do that accomplishes mission objectives and fiduciary goals? And I think that's been a really exciting part, frankly, of joining Goldman Sachs, which is people often ask the question, is there too much money chasing too few opportunities or the opposite, too little money, too much stuff that's not getting funded? And our answer is neither is true. There is a lot of appetite to put capital to work in this space. And there are a lot of things that could be investable and generate appropriate returns and impact. They may just not all be structured or packaged right. And so the ability to, in some cases, commission new products, new structures, new vehicles to build those on-ramps, often in partnership with our clients. So you know, you know, we're talking to large institutions that actually want to be part of that process of building the market so that they can meet their own demands and help build on-ramps for others. So I think that's what we often see with the large institutions who have been moving along. Universities have had their own path where a lot of student advocate, A lot of pressure
0: from the outside. A lot of
1: pressure from the outside. But institutions that are very proud of their investment heritage, very strong investors, very smart, very successful. And we've had some conversation very recently, folks trying to figure out how to square that circle with very excited activists that are pushing for change, a strong investment culture, and how do those meet. U.S. foundations have been an interesting case where they've lagged more than I think many would expect in terms of actually using their endowments in this work, which has been an interesting thing to see.
0: So, As you think about the divide between ESG investing and, and let's call it just for lack of a better term, mainstream investing, where do you think that distinction stands five, 10 years down the road? What does that look like
1: in the future? So I think there are two main things I'd say when we look at the future on this front. I think number one, and I don't know if this is a prediction or a hope, is people will get past labels into the underlying reality. So... When we look at a lot of impact investments and ESG investments, we're around the table with people that have no idea what impact investing is. I was sitting in a bar after a meeting, having a beer before I to the airport with a colleague, and I heard the person behind me mention the name of a sustainable timber fund we're invested in. And I turned and I said, did you mention this manager? They said, yeah, we're investors in there. I said, oh great, you're an impact investor. And they said, what's that? And I said, well, Why don't you explain your context? We're the real assets investment team for European National Pension Fund. We own and manage large chunks of forestry. We like the asset class, we're operators, we know it. We wanted more exposure, but we needed to geographically diversify. So let's look at US exposure. We start with a long list of forty-five managers, narrow it down to a short list of fifteen, and allocate it to five. They listed the five, and two of the five were our favorite sustainable timber managers. So I said, so In our book, that makes you an impact investor. And they said, no, those are just good managers, good teams with great track records and a differentiated thesis that lets them make money getting non-auction deal flow, often in partnership with community groups and others. So hopefully the world will get past labels and just pragmatically see as investors, some of these things are really good investments. I think that's prediction number one. People get past that. Prediction number two slash question number two is once upon a time, there were three paths. The three paths initially were ignore and resist all of this, do it as a compliance matter, or do it as an investment question. I think the first path is becoming less tenable, because the idea of covering your eyes and ears and steadfastly ignoring the idea that there's any value to be gotten from any of these things, I think the real question now is people either treat this as a compliance matter, and they have an ESG officer that writes a nice report, and they have checklists and questionnaires and awards, back to the conversation earlier, Or smart investors roll up their sleeves and figure this out. The latter path will be successful from a financial perspective, I hope and I think, and from an impact in a societal perspective. Smart investors figure out, where does this pencil, where is this material, where can this drive return, where can this manage risk, how can this be part of a good process? A lot of smart investors out there and having their brain power and their energy turned to this, entrepreneurs, investors, executives, that makes a difference. I say I'm nervous about a white paper and a questionnaire arms race, which we see because doing the work in that integrated, holistic way takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of thought, it's creative, it's hard, it's new, it's learning, it's growth, and it's a lot easier to send out a bunch of questionnaires. And I think that's my real question about the future. So I hope the future is smart investors rolling up their sleeves and doing more of this and doing it better and getting on that cycle of improvement where demand drives innovation, drives models of success, begets more
0: demand. Um, one last question, see. So y- The plumbing of the whole process around ESG investments has changed a bit. Talk a little bit about how you think that the process by which you do this will evolve. And if you could, maybe talk a little bit about the proliferation of data in the space, because it used to be that companies, some of them not so long ago, weren't even publishing ESG reports, but now almost everyone's doing, and there's beginning to be a voluminous amount of data in the space. Yes.
1: It's a nice connection to the last question comment, fear slash opportunity, which is proliferation of data can be something that then smart analytical people dig into and say how do we get greater quality coverage and meaning which over time may mean less better data
0: that's more meaningful
1: and constructive as opposed to just more
0: well there definitely needs to be standards too because they've been working on this for years series back in the old days started sasB working SASB to try to is trying how to... to figure out how to systematize it in the way you see financial reporting but proliferation of data doesn't necessarily mean exactly. better data
1: more is not better I think We can get on that virtuous cycle we're creating for example indices that are tied to data suddenly makes a bunch of people stakeholders in that data being good and it means there are consequences to the data and so back to the plumbing like that's a plumbing question how do we have better data fed into market indices that move capital which means we need people as stakeholders in a constant cycle of improvement of that data in terms of the meaning and the coverage doesn't mean we need more we need better and i think if it's a compliance question, we're gonna see a proliferation of data and we're gonna see beautiful charts and graphs based on that data. If it's an investing question, we're gonna see people parsing and reparsing and building this out in a way to extract meaning, either from alignment investing. If you're trying to maximize units of alignment per unit of tracking error, you gotta measure alignment. It's about alignment. If it's ESG integration, it's how does that give us deeper and better insight into the performance of companies, into the prospects of companies. We either engage to make it more focused and more actionable, or we just have a lot of it, you know, and I think that there's a real opportunity and there's a real risk because we can engage in that virtuous cycle that gets it put to constructive use, which means you've got a lot of stakeholders in making it better, or people just settle into a compliance regime of publishing a lot of papers.
0: John, thanks so much for joining me. It's a great discussion.
1: Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me.
0: That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was recorded on February 19th, 2016. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.